Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them you love them in Jesus' name. Very good. If you have your Bibles tonight, I'm going to invite you to open them with me again to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. And uh, just before we hop into this, let me kind of give you an idea of where we're going to be heading here for the next few weeks and uh, even the foreseeable future. Um, Tonight we're going to finish the church that we started last week, that is the church in Philadelphia. We're going to finish that tonight. I'm not going to take a long time with it either because um, I just want us to concentrate next week on the last of the seven churches. And that last one is the most famous, maybe you would say the most infamous of the seven churches, and that of course is the church of Laodicea. They are probably the most well-known church of the seven for all the wrong reasons, but they are the one that uh, most of us are the most familiar with. And so that will be next week. The following week, we're going to be taking a break. Okay, we're not going to uh, be in Revelation. We will have church that Wednesday night, but um, I'm not going to be here. You can be in prayer for Kathy and I. We're heading up to uh, the school that I graduated from, Zion then. It's now uh, uh, North Point. But uh, they've asked me to come back and to share with the student body. So I'm going to be there with them on that Wednesday and Thursday. And I'm looking forward to that time. It's, it's always neat to go back to the school that you graduated and uh, to minister to those students and maybe share some things that will help them as they journey into full-time ministry. So that will be not next week. Next week will be the last church. It'll be the following week. Don't stay home be here. We're going to have Wednesday night study, but uh, I won't be here. Then the following week, we'll get into uh, chapter 5, excuse me, chapter 4. And uh, chapters 4 and 5, John is taken into heaven, and he shares with us his visions of heaven and what uh, was and is going on in heaven Um, in the future, but even right now, I believe. He catches a vision of that, so we'll share those uh, things with you. Then we'll move into chapter 6, and when we get to chapter 6, that's where the attention shifts to the earth. And when we go from chapter 6 to the end of chapter 19, we're covering a seven-year period known as the tribulation period, and that'll be the seven years that we examine from chapter 6 through the end of chapter 19. It'll be all the events that take place on the earth at that time. Um, when we come to chapter 20, um, it, it's not really talked about, but the, the end of the seven years will usher in what we call the millennial reign of Christ. It's 1,000 years of uninterrupted peace upon this earth. He reigns um, you know, from Jerusalem, it's the kingdom of God is being established, but it, it won't be heaven at that point. It's in a thousand-year millennial reign, and it really doesn't go into any detail of that 1,000 years in Revelation. Um, it's from there, we'll probably have to take a little bit of a break from Revelation, and we'll look at other prophecies in the Bible to kind of give you an idea of what those thousand years are going to look like. When you come to the end of chapter 20, you'll find the final judgment of the wicked. 
Um, and this will be the great white throne judgment. It's a sad moment, but that will be the end, if you will, of the age as we understand it. And then when you come to chapters 21 and 22, you're given a picture of the new heavens and the new earth wherein will dwell righteousness forevermore. And we will never say goodbye. Our tears are wiped away. The battle is over and we are with our Savior forevermore. Amen. So that is kind of the direction that we're heading in. How long is that going to take us? Well, it's taken us 11 weeks to get through the first three chapters, so you do the math. I don't think that it'll take that long, but I would expect that we're going to be in Revelation the better part of this year. So get comfortable. Turn to your neighbor and say, get comfortable. We're going to be here for a while. All right, Revelation chapter 3, and uh, I want to start again by reading this entire letter, okay? This starts at verse 7. We're going to read it right through. Revelation chapter 3, beginning with verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, that would be the pastor of the church in Philadelphia, write, these things says, he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, and he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, just over these next few moments, would you speak to our hearts and may we leave here knowing that you have spoken because the Spirit has quickened our hearts to understand these things in Jesus' name. And again, everyone said, Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, I love you again. <laughs> All right. Um, you probably notice, and I am not going to do a, a whole review of last week, but I do think it's important to pick out a couple of things just for context for those of you that maybe were not here last week with us. You may notice that there is not one word of condemnation that is given to this church that is one of two of those seven churches that received no condemnation. The other one is the church at Smyrna, which was the persecuted church. They had remained faithful to the Lord. Here, there is, again, no word of condemnation. Now, that does not mean that the church in Philadelphia was perfect. They were faithful, and I love that. Because there are no perfect churches and there are no perfect Christians. Can I hear a good amen on that? 
And that's comforting. God had no word of condemnation to this church, not because they were perfect, but because they were faithful. And the reason I am comforted by that is because if I had to aim at perfection, I think I would be very depressed. Okay, We are to be perfect as He is perfect. We're to be holy as He is holy. Certainly we need to pursue that with the understanding I will never be perfect in my own strength. But I'm thankful I don't have to aim at perfection, but I can be faithful. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him you can be faithful. And that's what he's looking for. He's looking for us to be faithful servants of the Most High God. I was thinking about it today. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not uh, prevail against it. Well, I was thinking if he's building it, you're ne- it's not perfect because you're never perfect until the job is complete. The job will never be complete until we're with him one day. Until then, he's still building us. So I am not necessarily setting my aim on perfection, but I'm getting up every day seeking to be faithful to the Lord. He welcomes us into heaven. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. So just encourage one another to be faithful. We may stumble, we may fall, but we can get back up again and be faithful to our God in Jesus' name. He says, I know your works. Let me just remind you again that every judgment that Christ renders to each one of these churches is never based on some bias or some partial position that he holds. He doesn't look at anyone and say, wow, I I really like the songs that they sing, so I'm going to be a a blessing to them. No, that is not how God is. He's not moved by any prejudice. He's not moved by any partiality or bias. God renders to each one according to their works. And his, his judgment was just. It was righteous in that sense. And by the way, that is how God will judge every one of us. There's no good old boys or good old gals in the kingdom of God. He renders to each one according to our works. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by the grace of God. But our works are a testimony of our salvation experience. If I bear the fruit of the Spirit, then it is evidence that the Spirit is at work in my heart and in my life. And so it's very important that you know that your actions are not winning any favor from God. God judges you according to your works in Jesus' name. He says to this church, See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. Now, I'm not reading back there, but you may have heard it when I was reading here before that Jesus had previously described himself to this church as he who has the key of David, which is just a way of saying that he has the authority in the kingdom of God and also possesses the key to open up the treasuries of heaven and pour out the royal riches of the kingdom of God. And so literally what he's saying to them when he says, I have set before you an open door is, I have had the authority and I have the authority to open a door of opportunity to you But not only to open the door of opportunity for you, but to pour out all of the resources of heaven that are necessary for you to fulfill that purpose in the earth. 
And I think that is just a wonderful promise. If we're faithful as a church, if we are faithful as believers, God will open up doors of opportunity and He'll provide all of the resources that are necessary to accomplish that goal. And He says, no one will shut it. And I'm thankful for that promise. And what an incredible promise that had to have been for this particular church, seeing that he says, you have a little strength, but you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And again, if you were not here, understand that when he says you have a little strength, he's not talking about their physical strength or their spiritual strength or their emotional or mental strength. It literally was saying you're the smallest. They are the smallest of the seven churches. They have the smallest numbers. They have the the fewest resources at all. And so this church could have easily said, look at how small our church is and look at how little our offerings are. There is nothing that we can do in the city of Philadelphia. And Jesus says, nothing could be further from the truth. Because this has nothing to do with how big you are, it's how big I am. It has nothing to do with what you have, it has everything to do with my unlimited resources in heaven. And he's saying, because you as a church did not cave under the pressure that was coming to you from the synagogue of Satan, we'll talk about in a moment, and you have kept my word, you have persevered with patience, and you have not denied my name, I'm going to open up a door of opportunity for you, and I'm going to pour out all the resources that are necessary for you to accomplish that task in Jesus' mighty name. And that is a promise that we can take for ourselves, for our church. How many of you are thankful for that, for the glory of His name? And again, it's just, it's just the idea, be faithful. Don't worry about what you have. Concentrate on what He has. Don't worry about how big or small you think you are. You serve the great God. And if you're faithful, God will make a way where there seems to be no other way. In Jesus' name. He says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now again, this synagogue of Satan um, was obviously the synagogue there in the city of Philadelphia. They were Jews. Okay, we have to understand what he means here. They were Jews biologically. They were Jews culturally. But Christ did not consider them Jews because they had rejected Christ as their Messiah. And that's what he is simply saying. I know that that makes people tense. It's not anti-Semitic. I didn't say it. Jesus, who was a Jew, said it. He says, they've rejected me as the Messiah. So in my heart, they are not considered Jews because it is embracing Christ as the Messiah that completes all of mankind. Not just the Jew, but the Gentile remains cut off unless he's reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. For there is only one name given by which man may be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Evidently, the Jews in the synagogue of that city in Philadelphia were antagonistic toward the Christians and to some degree had harassed and brought hostility against those Christians. But the promise that Jesus made to them was, and again, we believe that there is a bigger picture here, but I believe that there is evidence from the Scripture that what he's saying is, 
I am going to so demonstrate my favor upon you, the Gentile believers, that the tender-hearted Jews in that synagogue that once antagonized you are going to be moved by the favor of God upon you, and they're going to come among you and bow their knee and call upon the name of Jesus Christ and be saved. And I, I just love that. And I, and I just think that that's why we bless those that curse us. That's why we pray for those that spitefully use us because when God pours out His blessings upon us and they see that favor, it will move the tender-hearted man, the tender-hearted woman to the living God Almighty in Jesus' name. It is His kindness that leads us to repentance, it says in Romans chapter 2. And we need to demonstrate the kindness of God even in the face of our enemies. Can you say amen? Or ouch. I know that that hurts a little bit, but that is the reality. But even though it is possible, there's no way to prove that because we don't have any, uh, any place in history where we could see that happening. And I'm just saying I believe that that happened. But that would just be the partial fulfillment because certainly there are end-time ramifications that we have to consider here as well. That in the future, God is going to use the nations to actually magnify his name. This is called the Gentile, the age of the Gentiles, the, end, the age of the church, if you will, we're living in right now. We've been living in this since the book of Acts. That up until the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it had basically been the children of Israel that were used to glorify the name of Christ in the Gentile nations. Okay, That all shifted in the book of Acts. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was brought on the Jews first, but eventually came into the Gentiles, and it is the Gentiles that have really propagated the gospel ever since. And the Jews have seen the testimony of Christ in the Gentiles and have come to him. Okay, But in the end, that's all going to be reversed because he's going to bring back, if you were here last week, we read that prophecy in Ezekiel 22, he's going to bring the Jews back to Israel and the Gentiles are going to see the faithfulness of God in them and glorify the name of Jesus Christ because Jesus is going to be exalted. Remember, he said, if they keep silent, the rocks are going to cry out. He is always going to be glorified in Jesus' mighty name. Okay? He goes on and says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole earth, or the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, we went over this last week, but I want to just go back here and address some things that I just didn't have the time last week, but now we got a little bit more time. I'd like to just throw them out to you. Not that they're life-changing, but there are some things that I just want you to keep in your heart so that you might give a defense for the hope that lies within you. Because, listen, not everyone believes what we believe concerning the last days. And that's okay. Depending on what they believe, it's all right. The kingdom of God is big enough to handle that we might have differing views, especially when it comes to end time events. But what I want you to be able to do is at least give an answer for why you believe 
what you believe so that you're not shaken when you hear varying arguments that are out there, okay? Um, if you were here the first couple of weeks that we started this study, uh, you may remember that at one point I spent some time talking about the various interpretations of revelation. Now, I'm not going to go through all of those interpretations again, but you may remember that I talked a little bit about the preterists. How many have ever heard of preterists or preterism? Okay, some of you have. Um, I'm not going to take a, a lot of time here. I can't, okay? Remember that there are full preterists and there are partial uh, preterists. Um, partial preterists I can fellowship with because even though I would disagree with their belief, they still hold to the fundamental truth in end times, and that is Christ is coming again. They would never deny that. They believe that Christ is coming again, and that's the, that is the foundational truth. We can, we can disagree on some of the finer points of it, but I just need to know, do you believe Christ is coming again? Because to reject that would be to make Christ a liar because he said he was coming again. So I can fellowship with somebody that at least believes that Christ is coming again. Partial preterists do. Full preterists do not. They do not believe that Christ is coming, that the world is going to kind of continue on and on. And we just die, and I guess we go to heaven. I, I'm not sure how far they take it. But what they believe is that all of the end-time prophecies that are in Revelation, okay? So basically, everything from chapter 5 on, they believe in one way or another has already been fulfilled in 70 A.D. So they believe that all the imagery that is in here um, was a prophecy concerning the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So they think it's already been fulfilled. And they give a lot of reasons for why they believe that. None of them are good. I mean, it, it is just a pathetic <laughs> belief. It really is. Um, but one of their arguments is from this text, and that's why I'm bringing it up. Because what they would say is, if all of these promises are for the future then what kind of comfort is this going to bring the church in Philadelphia? That if, if it's, you know, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. If that's in the future, that provides absolutely no hope for the church in Philadelphia at that time. Well, I mean, I don't know that I really need to share with you the obvious but the premise of that is so ridiculous because it's basically saying that the only way you can draw comfort from the promises of God is if you're actually alive and well when they take place, when they happen. And if they happen after you've gone, that they have not provided any kind of comfort or stability in your heart and your life. Well, we know that that's ridiculous. Because people have been comforted by the Word of God since God first began to speak to them, even if they never saw it fulfilled. It just gave them the hope that God is going to keep His promise, and I don't have to see it. By faith, I believe it in Jesus' mighty name. I, I was reminded just the other day, I did a lot of traveling this week, and... Um, 
And just thinking about these things, I was reminded of what it says at the very end of Hebrews chapter 11, which is the great hall of faith. These are all of the the kings and the, the judges and the prophets of the Old Testament, the mighty men of God, mighty women of God. And it says at the very end in Hebrews 11, verse 39, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, what's it say? did not receive the promise. Isn't that awesome? Like, David saw a greater day coming. Isaiah saw a greater day coming, but they never saw it complete. But they kept on because they knew who they had believed in and they were persuaded that God is able and even after I die, He's going to keep His promise forever amen i mean that's that they they never lost heart they just kept living by faith in jesus name and i also thought of uh, of the oldest book in the bible and i don't know how many of you know this the oldest book in the bible is not genesis genesis has the beginnings but it's not the oldest the oldest book is job Job is the oldest book in the bible job was on the earth before abraham and uh, and you know Job's story, but you may remember in the midst of his heartache, he makes one of the greatest confessions in the Old Testament. And we used to sing a song that celebrated it. He, he says, for I know my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will stand on the earth. Though my flesh be destroyed, yet with my eyes, I will see God. Praise the Lord. And, and, and he was living by faith. When they didn't even know what resurrection was, the Holy Spirit bore witness with him that you are going to rise from the dead, Job. And when you do, with those very eyes that you see all this pain and suffering with right now, you will see the Christ face to face in Jesus' name. So I'm going to tell you, you don't have to be alive and see it all happen to receive comfort. These men and women were comforted because they knew who they had believed in, the one who always keeps his promises. And then I'll just give you one more example of that, and it would be probably one of the most celebrated scriptures as far as the rapture of the church is concerned. From 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16 through 18, we read, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so therefore, there again, you have them comforted with these words, whether they were dead or they were alive. The beauty is, I can sit at the bedside of a dying saint and comfort them with this thought, you have believed upon the Lord, and to be absent from this body is to be present with Him, and those that have called upon the name of Jesus Christ, you will be reconciled and and reunited with them in Jesus' name. And I can stand with the grieving who are alive and say, your loved one that have believed upon Christ are with the Lord and maintain your relationship with the Lord, and you will see them and you will see Christ. You don't have to be alive to see these things before you are comforted. We take these words of God, we build our lives upon them because God always keeps His promises in Jesus. 
Jesus' mighty name. Amen. These are comforting words. Now, that's one thing that I want to bring out, but there's one other thought I want to just hone in on here quickly before we move on. And it, it really has to do with that word keep. Um, because the Christians in the city of Philadelphia had persevered, because they had not grown weary, the promise that he made them was that he would keep them from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Um, there's a lot of debate on that one word, keep. All right? And the debate is, does he mean that he will take us out of the hour? Like, will he remove us from the hour of trial? Maybe some of you have already heard this. Or will he preserve us through the hour that will still be here, but we're going to be preserved through that trial, uh, just like he did with Israel when they were enslaved to uh, the Egyptians. And the plagues came upon the whole land, but God preserved the children of Israel. And so there is that debate. You know, Now, we here believe that we are kept from that he literally takes us out of that seven-year tribulation period. But there are, and I believe that they're going to heaven. You know, it's all right. I was talking to one the other day, and he says, no, we're going to be here. And I said, well, you can stay if you want to, buddy. But, you know. Um, but uh, literally, there's another pastor. I just talking lunch with him yesterday, and, and I kind of laughed. I just said, well, you can stay here, Mike, if you want to, but um, I'm leaving. But, uh, you know, there are those that believe that we're going to be here, but we're going to be kept from the, the plagues, if you will, the judgments of God that he will preserve us. So, you know, we all go back and forth, but, and I want to make what could be a long discussion short here grammatically you cannot resolve that issue because we really don't know how John was using that word keep it works either way he could have meant I'll keep you from it I'll, I'll take you out but it also could mean I'm gonna keep you through it all it could go either way so what do you do when you get to an impasse like that um, I would always look at the context that's context is everything but I would compare it to other scriptures that deal with the end times. And I'm a very simple man, so I'm going to try to keep things very simple. There are two thoughts that immediately come to my mind as to why I take the position that he is going to take us out, that he's going to keep us out from that time of judgment. The first thing I want you to consider is when you think about the extent of judgment that is going to come upon this earth, beginning in chapter 6 with the four horsemen, <laughs> the seven-sealed book, the seven trumpets, the seven thunders, the seven bowls that will ultimately result in the death of three-quarters of the earth's population. I don't know how many of you know that, but if you add it all up, when the judgments are over, three-quarters of earth's population will be dead in seven years. When you consider that, boy, it's awful hard to imagine a scenario where every believer is going to be preserved through it. Now, could he? He's God, okay? So could he do it? Yes, obviously he could. No one's denying that. But 
it's very hard to visualize a manner in which the, the, the church globally could be spared uh, the extent of the political, militaristic, economic, environmental upheaval that is going to occur. When you, just, when you just think of three quarters of the earth's population being wiped out in seven years, it's just very hard to imagine how not one believer. Now, it would be a miracle, and there's no doubt about that, but it's just very hard to consider it. That's probably the weakest of the two thoughts. This is the one that just keeps settling in my heart. And, and you know, I think that as a, as a student of the Word of God, we need to be firm on foundational truths, but things that are not foundational, we always should be open to learn and grow and never be afraid of that. We don't all agree on the end time events. That's okay. I just need to know, do you believe Christ is coming again? That's all I need to know. If you don't always agree with me, we can have discussions on those things. So we should always be open to learn. But this is the one thought, no matter what anybody tells me, I just can't get around this fact. And that is that once you finish chapter 3 and you go into chapter 4, the church is never mentioned again until you come to Revelation chapter 19. It's just, it's nowhere. Once we finish chapter 3, you will never hear the church mentioned again until you come to chapter 19. And that's a big deal where he talked about the church in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and then all of a sudden, you don't hear about the church again until chapter 19 when the church returns as a mighty army with Christ to stamp out evil once and for all okay it's never mentioned again and people would say well that's not a big deal <laughs> what the church as i said a few moments ago is the vehicle through which redemption is preached to the nations even to this day so if the church were here and we know people are going to be saved during the seven-year tribulation then the church would, would definitely be seen. But who are the ones that are seen preaching the everlasting gospel? Angels, 144,000 Jews that are preserved, and two witnesses. You never hear about the church. So I just don't know how we could have that period of time um, where the church is there, but it's never mentioned at all. I, I just believe that the evidence is overwhelming that before that seven-year tribulation period takes place, the Lord is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. Then we who are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord will be caught up together to meet them in the air. Forevermore we be with our Lord and Savior. And then the wrath of God will be poured out upon this earth that has rejected Christ as their Lord and their Savior. That's my personal conviction. However, I will tell you this. That does not mean in any way, shape, or form that um, we are going to get out of here unscathed. Um, I think it is very irresponsible for pastors to stand before mostly their Western congregations and say, don't worry, before anything really bad happens, you're going to be in heaven yeah. Have you read the news lately? Things are getting 
ugly. And it is entirely possible that we are going to go through harder times than we have ever imagined possible in the United States of America. I'm going to tell you, we are a divided nation. That's why we have to fight for unity in this house. Can we just say we're going to keep politics out of our church, please, for the next year? Please don't wear Trump t-shirts. Please don't wear... uh, Whoever, you know, (laughs) feel the burn. I think that is so funny. Um, Whoever it is on the other side, please. Can we just, we honor Christ here. And that doesn't mean that that, um, when we get closer to that time that we need to start talking about issues, you know, issues that we're we're not, we live in the United States, but we are citizens of the kingdom of God. That's... That's how we have to look at this. And, and we have to look at issues through a biblical lens. And then we just have to say, I have to choose a, a party, not because I want to, but because that's a civic responsibility that best aligns, best, because, you know, it's not going to get any easier, that best aligns with those things. I know that even saying that can be a little controversial, but, but we honor one king here. And it's King Jesus. And, and we need to praise Him and honor Him. Come on, can you say amen to that tonight? Okay. But, but regardless, any fix that we put on it is temporary. We're heading into difficult times. We're going to pray for the best, but boy, we need to prepare for the worst. Don't think for a moment. You know, the majority of Christians around this globe already think we're living in the perse- in the tribulation. You'd be hard-pressed to, to convince them they weren't because they are suffering every single day, okay? And how arrogant it would be for us as Americans to say, well, I have a theology that I'm going to get out of here before anything bad happens. I pray you're right, but we need to be ready if, it's, if it gets really rough. And so I I just think that is the responsible way of handling it. I just know that we are going to go before the wrath of God comes. We'll feel the wrath of man, but the wrath of God is reserved for the wicked. And we're going to be with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, so enough of that. He says, behold, I am coming quickly. His coming is quick. It's imminent. It's going to happen without warning. And knowing that, We are to always be found faithful in Christ. That's what he is saying to us. Be faithful because I am coming like a thief in the night. Until Christ comes, we are to persevere with patience. We are to keep his word. We are not to deny his name, no matter how difficult it it is in Jesus' name. And then he says this, I love it. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Hold fast what you have that uh, no one may take your crown. Uh, hold fast, literally, it's a present tense. And so it's, it literally could be said, continue to hold fast or uh, hold, uh, can, uh, continue holding fast. It's just right now a present action. I have a responsibility, you have a responsibility to hold fast 
to your confession of Jesus Christ and never let it go. And the reason that is so important is because it shows the cooperation that exists between God and His children. I cannot expect God to hold on to me and I can go and do whatever I want to do. The understanding is, I will never let go of you. Don't let go of me. It's a cooperation. Remember what I said, if you were here on Sunday night, um, I mentioned this right at the very end. Yes, God is able to keep us from stumbling. But I love that word, He is able. He doesn't say, I will keep you from stumbling. He says, I have the ability to keep you from stumbling. But in the earlier verses, what does he say? Build yourself up in the most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Uh, continue in the love of God. Hold on to the hope of seeing him face to face one day. What is he saying? Abide in me. Don't expect me to keep you from stumbling while you're out there doing your own thing. I'm able, but you've got to abide in me. And so, you know, that's what he's saying here. You hold fast. You don't have to ever, ever have to worry about me letting you go. But I'm not going to hold you against your will. I'll never let you go, but you've got to hold on to me. And that doesn't mean you're not going to stumble, but I can keep you from I can pick you back up again. We'll make it, but you've got to abide in me. My salvation doesn't revolve on me. I'm, I'm saved by grace through, through faith. Maybe I need to go back and preach that. We're saved by grace through faith. I must hold on to my faith faithfully to the end in Jesus' name. Now he says that no one may take your crown. Now I'm going to stop here for a moment because we've mentioned crowns over the last few months, but we've never really talked about them. And so I thought that tonight I would just take a few moments and talk about crowns. Many of you know that um, as believers, we're not just going to go into the glories of heaven and have a wonderful time. There's a stop that we're all going to make at the judgment seat of Christ. Okay? Your Bible tells you that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The issue there is not salvation. By virtue of being at the judgment seat of Christ, you're already saved. It's the great white throne judgment you don't want to be. Okay, that's, you want to go to the judgment seat of Christ. That, that is not to determine whether you're saved or not. This is where our lives are tested. And what was done for the Lord is going to come through fire. What was done for ourselves will be burned up. Okay, what is left is a reward. And those rewards will come in the form of crowns. And the Bible specifically mentions five crowns that are available to the believer. Could there be more? There could be. We just know of five that are actually mentioned. And I just want you to write these things down. I think it's good for you just to remember. These are the rewards that we can look forward to one day. First of all, there is the, imp the imperishable crown. The imperishable crown. Does that sound familiar to you? If you were in church on Sunday morning, it should. The imperishable crown is a crown for those who faithfully run the race. It's 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 and 25. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, say this part with me, but one receives the prize. 
run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is tempered in all things. Now they do it, excuse me, to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. And so the first crown is this imperishable crown that is given to those who have faithfully run their race and have run in such a way that they obtained that prize in Jesus' name. Then secondly, there is the crown of rejoicing. The crown of rejoicing. And this is a crown for soul winners and those who faithfully witness. Now, I don't believe that those crowns are going to be divvied out Uh, according to how many people you've won to Christ because everyone has their own free will. I think that the emphasis there is that you've been a faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you took advantage of every opportunity that was afforded to you to interject salvation through Jesus Christ into the conversation. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19-20, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For you are our glory and joy. And so he is speaking of those who have come to Christ. He says, you are our crown of rejoicing. You are the reason of our rejoicing because you've embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior. The third crown is the crown of life. The crown of life. This is a crown for those who have faithfully endured suffering. That even in the midst of suffering, they have endured and they have kept their faith in Jesus' name. James 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Um, That brings us to the fourth crown, and that is the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness. This is a crown for those longing for the second coming of Jesus Christ. The crown of righteousness. A crown for those longing for the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 8, where he says, Finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you look for him every day? Well, some of you do. <laughs> um, you know, one thing I would say here, Hebrew says, and unto them that look for him will he appear a second time without sin unto salvation. So if you're not looking for him, uh, welcome to earth. <laughs> um, <laughs> unto them that look for him will he appear a second time. There should be a longing. It's not that we, you know, it's not that we don't have things to live for here, but I'm, can I just tell you, I love my wife and I love my children and I love this church and, and I love everything, but boy, is it only me, but the older you get, there's just this longing. Man, I want to be with Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I'm so tired of life, but boy, it'll be worth it all when we see Jesus face to face. And I think that that's, it's like Paul saying, you know, I'm just in this, this really odd time because I I get he, this is my paraphrase, but this is what he's saying. He says, I, I really want to be in heaven, but I know right now it's most benef- beneficial for me to be with you. And that's what we've got to remember. I would rather be with Jesus, but right now we're here 
And let's make a difference in Jesus' name. And then the final crown is the crown of glory. The crown of glory. And this is a crown for pastors who have faithfully fed the flock of the Lord. It's talked about in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. He says, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So that one hits a little closer to my home. Um, these are the crowns that we, we strive for. And uh, some people would, you know, and again, they think that they sound so holy when they say it, but nothing could be more selfish when you hear a believer say, I don't need any rewards, I don't need any crowns. Just being in heaven will be enough for me. What a very selfish way to live your life. Because there is going to be a moment, you're going to read about it when we get to chapter 4 and 5, a credible moment when all the saints of all the ages gather around the throne of God. And the first thing they do is reach up for those crowns on their head and they cast them at the feet of Jesus. Because they recognize it wasn't me. It was God working through me it had nothing to do with me anyway and i don't know about you but i don't want to be one of those guys on the other side of heaven that's sitting there with no crowns i want to be right there and throw them all at his feet say worthy 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 is the lamb of god in jesus name amen can you just take a moment right there and lift your hands and just praise him for all that he does for all that he's doing all that he has yet to do we worship you almighty god there is none like you, mighty God, mighty God. Hallelujah. He says, he who overcomes, let me just finish this up quickly. He who overcomes, the Christians in the city of Philadelphia had overcome and they were overcoming. How? They, they kept the word of God. They did not deny his name and they persevered with patience. And that's what we strive for. And just, just remember that you're already an overcomer through Jesus Christ. You're, you're working from a position of having already won through Christ. Don't lose that position. I mean, that's the promise that uh, Paul gave us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 37. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for i am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities or powers or things present or things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of god which is in christ jesus our lord so you already are an overcomer through jesus christ let no man steal your crown and by the way um, the only one that I've ever had to worry about stealing my crown is me. Okay, because nobody really can steal my crown. The only one that can steal my crown is me by not remaining faithful. So run the race. Turn to your neighbor and say, run the race and, and don't get weary. Okay. Say that last part with him and don't grow weary. All right? He goes on, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. 
I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. Now, he shall go out no more was actually a shout out to the frequent earthquakes that that city experienced. If you were here last week, I told you that they were actually, the city was built on volcanic uh, territory. So it was not really the, the volcanoes that were the issue, it was the earthquakes that sometimes occurred there and they had two major earthquakes that devastated the city they rebuilt every time but it just it just left the city shell-shocked and and uh, what happened is every time there was a major earthquake there was a migration from the city out to the outskirts because nobody wanted to be in the city where they could get hit by flying rock and everything else. So there was just a lot of tension and terror that was in that city and so Jesus is playing on that and he says oh and by the way when you overcome I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of God which is an everlasting kingdom and you will never have to go out because this kingdom cannot be shaken you've built your life on the rock and you will stand and I'm going to tell you that is a message I can sink my teeth into because when you consider the political earthquakes when you consider the relational earthquakes when you consider the economic earthquakes that we are all susceptible to do uh, today to experience, I'm thankful that I can build my life upon a rock and become a, a pillar in the kingdom of God and not be shaken in Jesus' mighty name. He goes on and says, I will write on him the name of my God. Now listen to these words carefully. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Now, his name, the name of the city, new Jerusalem, his new name are all images of ownership. Now, you know that as well as I do, because the first thing that you do when you get something and you want to make sure that it's ever lost, they know who to give it back to, is you put your name and your address in it. You even do that with your iPads. You put your name, you put your identification in there so that if it ever is lost, they'll know who owns it and they'll know how to get it back to you. There's an address or some kind of contact information that is there, okay? And that is what he's saying. Think of it in these terms. Um, even today, fundraisers, in order to raise monies for a museum or a park or a zoo or some building, what will they do? They'll say, buy this brick for $1,000. Buy this stone for $10,000. Or, you know, for a greater gift, we'll give you a greater stone or a bigger rock or whatever it might be. And what do they do? They put it on a wall or they put it as a paver on the floor because they want your name etched in it so that long after you're gone, your name will live on for decades. That's what Jesus says. He says, you know what? You're going to be my pillar, but the difference is I'm not putting your name on you. I'm putting my name on you. You're bought with a price. You are my precious possession. I'm going to write my name on you. I'm going to write the name of my city on you. 
and I'm also going to write my new name on you. Now, what is a new name? Evidently, and I think that this goes without saying, there are revelations of God that we haven't even seen yet that are going to be revealed to us when we get into eternity. You have an eternal God. God cannot show you his entire glory. But when we're in heaven, we're still going to be learning about our God for all of eternity. And he says, you know, I'm going to write my name, my city, and my new name on you. Can I just tell you, nobody is in heaven saying, look at me. Nobody's in heaven taking a bow. Make no mistake about it. The very fact that you are there is a demonstration not of your willpower and your great faith. You're there because you serve a great God. (laughs) And for all eternity, you are simply there to reflect the grace, the mercy, and the power of God to redeem you from your sin. It says in the Word of God that it was the intent of God to actually use you to manifest to all of creation the power of Almighty God. So let's not take bows even now. Our God is worthy of all of the praise. We're here today because of the mercy of God. We're not sitting here saved today because we are all of that in a bag of chips. We are here because our God is greater. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen. And he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church in this hour. Be faithful, Bethel. Father, we thank you for your loving kindness and mercy. Love, Lord, the simplicity of your word that speaks so profoundly to our lives. And Lord, I I thank you for this wonderful church in Philadelphia that was faithful, What an open door you gave them. A door that's still open to this day. Because today we were all encouraged because of the open door you gave to Philadelphia. Lord, I would love to be a church. I'd love to be a child of God. That long after we're gone, they would still be talking about how you glorified your name in us. Lord, help us to strive for that. We'll never be perfect, not until we're with you, but until that day, we can be faithful. And if we're faithful in these days, you will open a door that no man will shut. And we trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you, everybody. We'll see you Sunday, the Lord willing. Creek don't rise.